Woo. Got me all stoked, Blake. Good morning, everybody. So uh, I've told this story before. And here's the thing. When a guy's been teaching every Sunday for all these years, you're going to hear repeats, right? So, but it's so apropos that I can't not share this today. Um, uh, years ago, and I mean, I don't know exactly how many years ago it was, but um, several years ago, uh, somebody had come to the church here uh, before the service had started, and I didn't recognize this person. I walked up to her and I just said, hi, uh, good morning. My name is Rob. And, and she said, oh, hi, uh, I need to speak with the pastor. And of course, that statement is loaded with all kinds of, of doctrinal practice. But either way, I knew what she was asking for. And I just said, oh, well, that would be me. I, I, I'm Rob. And, and she looked at me uh, up and down. And then she looked over at Blake, who happened to be standing not too far from me. And, you know, Gwen always dresses Blake so nicely. And, and, and she looked over at Blake and she said, oh, I thought he was the pastor. And when she looked back at me, she was still going up and down like this. And the look of just, I mean, clear disappointment was visceral with her. So much so that I started getting disappointed too. And I was kind of like, man, it's true. Maybe we could go ask him if he could be the pastor and that would fix all, all of this. As human beings living on planet Earth, uh, all of us have experienced disappointment at some point in our lives, at one, you know, one time or another, sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways, but all of us know what it's like to be disappointed. Think back to some of the expectations that you may have had in life uh, that didn't pan out the way that you imagined that they would. And if you can sit here this morning and conjure up a memory of what you experienced, the motions of that, of confusion and sorrow and disillusionment. Can you remember what those times have been like before? Have you ever felt that way about God or the way God is unfolding things in your own life? And it's okay. I mean, we should be honest about that. Haven't we ever felt those times before? If we're honest about it, there are a lot of times when God doesn't seem to be responding or doing what we think he should be doing at any given moment uh, in life. Like we'll set out to find a better job and we'll spend time as we should praying about it beforehand. God, lead me to this job. We look at the one that we think is there. Lord, give me that. Open these doors if this is what you want for me. And we get into this job and we're grateful at first. And then all of a sudden we realize this is actually a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And then the people are not very nice at all. And every day suddenly becomes this strain and issue of stress and we begin to go back to God. God, what happened here? I thought you were leading me into this job and now this is a mess. Can you relate to that? Anybody relate to that? It's on all kinds of issues, not just jobs. It can be uh, houses. It can be relationships. It can be all kinds of things that we find ourselves seeing life panning out differently than we anticipated that it would. This is a common experience for people. And I mean, people of faith, faithful people, good people who follow God. This is a common experience. And really, we've got a lot of examples in the Bible of people who struggled with disappointments and doubts when it came to God's plans and how he was unfolding them. We're going to be looking at just such a person this morning who struggled with questions and disappointments with God that seemed uh, to really throw him. As we read our text this morning, we're progressing in our study in the Gospel of Luke. If you've got a way of following along in your own Bible or Bible app, you want to head to Luke chapter 7. Last week, we started chapter 7 
We read about two miracles that Jesus did, one for an officer of the Roman army, the occupying forces there in Israel, and then another miracle for an unnamed widow, uh, a poor widow. And we considered the nature of faith in that first account, and, and, was, and then we also considered the nature of God's compassion towards humanity, even when we can't express faith. And right on the heels of Jesus doing this miracle for a Roman official, Luke inserts this small interlude here where we're going to revisit John the Baptist. And we're going to consider just how unconventional the Messiah's work is uh, within the cultural and religious expectations of that time, I would suggest even in our own time. We're going to reflect on what it means for us as followers of this unexpected Messiah, how we can expect things to to work or maybe how we should temper our expectations. So if you're there in Luke chapter 7, we're going to pick up where we left off. We're starting with verse 18. It says, The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples, and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting Or should we keep looking for someone else? John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Okay, we'll we'll stop there for a moment. A lot of times this section gets used by preachers to encourage us not to give up our faith in Jesus. And certainly that is an element of what's happening here in this. But far too often, John the Baptist gets portrayed poorly in my thinking. So oftentimes it's kind of like, you know, this, this is just a moment of weakness for John the Baptist. Don't worry about it and don't let that happen to you, that kind of thing. But honestly, we've got to, I think it's very important that we recognize how understandable his response is, his question is in, in this. Let's think about where everybody's located in this text as we read this here. Luke doesn't mention it in this part, but we learned earlier back in Luke chapter 3 that Herod had locked John the Baptist in prison because he had rebuked Herod for stealing his brother's wife. So, first of all, we remember that John the Baptist is in prison. And then we think about the contrast here. John being held in an ancient world prison. Remember, he, you know, this is more likely a, a dungeon under Herod's desert palace at that time. And he's sitting in the dark, and he's surviving only on what food or clothing his disciples and friends would bring him because in the ancient world, no provisions were made for any prisoners at that time. And when they bring him food, when his disciples come and they bring him some supplies, they update him on Jesus, you know, the the one that John had identified as being the Messiah. They give him updates about what all has been happening. And as they've been coming, they've been telling him, well, you know, he's been hanging out with a lot of sinners uh, lately. And he even uh, asked a tax collector to follow him. But, you know, last week he, uh, he healed the servant of a centurion. Uh, and I can imagine at that moment, John just kind of stepping back and, and being hit with that, like being punched in the gut. Because we, we read last week, the centurion is identified as living in, in uh, Caesarea, or not Caesarea, but in uh, Capernaum. And and for a centurion in Capernaum, it meant that he was under the employ of of the very man who was holding John the Baptist prisoner. He's under the employ of Herod. So it's understandable that John sends this question out. Are you, are you, are you really the Messiah? 
Maybe, you know, maybe there's somebody else coming right after you, somebody a little more Messiah-y that we should be looking for. But this is a rhythmic theme that we get not only through the scriptures, but we get it in the gospels in, in large spoonfuls. And, and, and that is that God's activity often looks very different from what we expect. Remember, Luke gave us a, a, a rather extensive history of John. We followed his birth and prior to his birth. And, and his message that he preached was all about Messiah showing up and cutting down the unrighteous and baptizing with fire and winnowing out the chaff. John the Baptist didn't remember getting any memos about dinner parties with tax collectors or benevolence towards the occupying forces in, in this. John like all of Israel at that time, was waiting for the Messiah to show up and drive the false king Herod out to clean up the priesthood and to overthrow the Romans, restoring Israel's national identity as the people of God. That was the game plan, as everybody understood it at that time. But Jesus shows up operating from a very different playbook than than they had put together. And it's not that Jesus was just trying to to mess with Israel. He wasn't pushing their history and scriptures aside and just saying, listen, we're playing by new rules now. It wasn't that. But he was revealing that their understanding of what it was that God had been preparing all along was quite different from what it is that they understood it to be. Their understanding of it was quite different from what God had actually intended. And it's not that it's wrong to, to speculate or or wonder, or to study and try and discover what God is going to do at some point. Uh, you know, he gives us his word. That's part of it is to do just that, to, to consider and meditate and think about what God could be up to. He gives us his word for that. The problem occurs when we carve our speculations into stone. When we say, well, here's the game plan, and it is not going to happen any other way. Because that's exactly what Israel and their leadership did. And they ended up missing the Messiah because of it. No, worse than that. They ended up putting their Messiah to death because of that. Listen, this can happen to us on an individual level. It doesn't even have to be just a large people group, a church corporation or anything like that. This can happen to us in our own lives, where we plot our course so meticulously, describing in exact detail what God's blessing is going to look like for us. And when it doesn't happen according to our blueprint, we spiral into confusion and and despair. And look, it's okay to be confused. I don't mean that in some derogatory sense. It's all right. Confusion is a very common state for a human being. You know, I'm from Ohio. I'm from Florida. I'm from the great state of confusion. But John the Baptist was confused and disappointed here. And it's important to remember here that this is God's kingdom and God's plan, not ours. And he's going to direct it according to his purposes. So sometimes we are going to be a little confused by how these things pan out and what exactly is happening here. And that is, again, not to say that God is deliberately trying to disappoint us. He's not there going, ooh, this will really mess with their heads. No, what we know about God is that he's not capricious, he's not mean, but he's got this big plan unfolding. It's been unfolding through the ages. This magnificent story with a really good ending. And he's written us into that story. So sometimes the story goes differently. Than, than our anticipations of it. And when that happens, he provides us with opportunities to grow. 
to begin to grow internally and, and change our perspective and temper our responses because God's doing something big in this world and he's also doing something big in our hearts. He's drawing something out in us more than we ever thought we could be. We just have to trust him in the process, right? We have to trust in this good ending that he's leading us towards. So John the Baptist is bummed because he was waiting for fire and, and, and the winnowing fork and the judgment on sinners, but instead he got this Messiah who is helpful even to the enemy. And when Jesus responds to John's question, he doesn't answer it directly. Let's look at what he says in verse 21. At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Then tell him, God blesses those who don't turn away because of me. Okay, so it's interesting how Luke begins this. At that very time, it says. In other words, John the Baptist's disciples show up while Jesus is doing all these amazing curative miracles that are restoring people physically and spiritually, and we could even say socially, because we've talked about the great social impact that some of these illnesses would have, how they couldn't fend for themselves anymore or be part of society. So we're meant to catch the ironic contrast here. Jesus doesn't come out and say to them, yes, I'm the Messiah, stop questioning me. Or, or, or Instead, he challenges them to evaluate what it is that they're observing. What are you seeing taking place here? And he describes his activity through a rapid series of quotations from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, it says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like the deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. It's just some of the quotes. It's several different things in there. And he's pointing out that these prophecies were expected to be fulfilled when God showed up for the saving of Israel and the world. And he's saying, this is actually happening. What it is we've been waiting for, it's happening right here, right in front of you. Jesus didn't come out and declare that he's the Messiah for timing and, you know, actually political reasons, but he gives the word and then he challenges us to sort it out for ourselves, to figure out how this is working here. And the thing is, all of these scriptures that Jesus points to were predictions of what was going to happen when Israel was restored or when God's salvation finally showed up. But everybody expected these things to be occurring after the time of exile, after God had dealt with all of Israel's enemies and had put them down and God was making everything right again. But here is Jesus doing this while Rome is still in charge and Herod is still abusing his power. John and all of Israel were keenly looking for the fires of justice. Burn, Herod, burn. That was the idea and the mindset. But God was showing something else the unexpected way in which his kingdom is closing in on this world through grace. Revelation through redemption is what he was revealing. So this is unconventional because it throws our sequences off because we tend to fixate and focus on the judgment side, the punishment side of things. 
But here we see that the focus of God's activity is on restoration, not on punishment. Now, we as humans, as I said, we have a tendency to to focus on punitive judgment. But all through the Gospels, it's God's grace that's the heart of Christ's mission. And, And that means it's supposed to be the heartbeat of our mission as well, as the church, as the representations of Christ in this world. This unthinkable grace is the way we have got to go if we're going to be in sync with the work of God's kingdom as Jesus has revealed it to us. So, Rob, does this mean that you don't believe in judgment then? Is that what you're saying? You don't believe there's any kind of judgment and everything's cozy and cool? No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. The, the scriptures do warn of a time, a time that's coming, that God is going to sweep away all the brokenness of this place, all the corruption of sin, and, and, and he's going to set everything back to his original intent uh, of, of establishing his order so that heaven and earth are united again. And the message comes across all through Scripture that if a person wants this world the way it is right now, if a person allies with this world's attempt to build a paradise without God, then when this broken world goes, that person goes with it. And that's certainly a sobering reality, but all that is is the opposite side of the concept. When we think of judgment, it's usually thinking along a punitive sense, but that is not all that judgment is. Think of a courtroom setting. There's a poor, poor man who's had every little bit that he owned taken away from him by a land baron. Some evil land baron stole up his properties, stole up his home, stole up the possessions that he had. When it lands in court and the judge renders his verdict, he finds the land baron guilty and he orders that everything be restored to the one from whom it was taken. That restoration is a beautiful thing. That's a thing. That's a reason for rejoicing. The threat of consequence is there, but it's not always the way we expect it. But the main focus, the one that Jesus continually points to, is the hope of restoration, of restoring all that the worm has eaten away, of restoring us back to our place of relationship with God. All of his works are pulling that good ending into our present, forecasting what it will be if we'll embrace it. What is it going to be like if we'll embrace that by faith? In other words, Jesus lived in the world now as though it were already healed. And that's what he calls us to do as well. Yet we, and by we, I mean Christians, historically tend to fixate on the punitive judgment side. Most, well, I'm not going to say most, but there are whole ministries out there that, that, devote themselves entirely to promoting who and how and when God is going to destroy some people. Uh, just I don't even want to bog down with that. But the reality is, on one level, punitive judgment is is just more exciting to talk about. I mean, as long as we're talking about you being judged and not me. Uh, you know, let's make that clear. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason that those that churches hosting hell houses was such a popular thing back in the 90s. I don't know if they're still doing that. Are, are they still? Anybody, you know what I'm talking about, a hell house? Uh, so back in the 90s, and like I said, they might still be happening. Uh, there were these, these churches that would set up kind of like a haunted house kind of thing. 
And, 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 you know, it would be like they'd act out all the, the terrors of hell for people as they'd guide them through and really traumatizing stuff like any, uh, you know, haunted house is. I just find it interesting that we've never heard of a mercy house. Like, like a place where all the kind activities of God are put on display for everybody or people just kind of hug you when you walk in to let you know God's heart for you boring nobody's going to go see something like that it's not entertaining it's not exciting enough that's because it's just a lot easier to to warn a difficult person about judgment than it is to learn how to love them or to figure out ways of expressing restorative grace towards them and the result of this mindset can be personally detrimental to us if we allow ourselves to marinate in that a well-known Christian author just renounced his faith recently. I don't know if you saw that in the news. He was popular in the new Calvinist movement. And in renouncing Christianity, and this is a guy that's written books and was pretty popular, he said the most tragic thing that I think I've ever read by someone leaving the faith. He said, I'm ready to not be angry anymore. I'm probably in the best spot of my life. I'm so full of joy for the first time I love my life for the first time. That's so tragic to me because it reveals such a woeful misunderstanding of Christ's mission and of the meaning of the gospel. Something that actually does seem representative of quite a few people uh, in the church today. Jesus didn't try to manage people by inducing fear or outrage. He didn't focus. If you look at his teachings, he didn't focus all the time on everything that's wrong and all the problems with Herod and everything else going on in the world. Instead, when John's disciples show up, he points at the good and healing work being done and offered to those who couldn't afford it. He said that is evidence of God's activity in this world, encouraging us to think it through, to to come to the conclusion on our own that we should choose to embrace this hope and represent that hope of God's unthinkable love for the human race. Well, anyway, let's keep going here. Verse 24. After John's disciples left, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people who wear beautiful clothes and live in luxury are found in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes. And he's more than a prophet. John is a man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, Look, I'm sending my messenger to you and he will prepare your way before you. I tell you, all, all of, all who, I'm sorry, you, I tell you of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John. Yet, even the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All right, really some interesting stuff to unpack here. Jesus turns to the crowds after John's disciples leave, and he you notice he doesn't say, you know, that guy, wow, whatever. No, he actually commends John the Baptist to them. So he's not offended. Keep that in mind. He's not offended by John's questions or moment of uncertainty in this. But he challenges the crowds who've gone in droves to hear what John had to say. And he asked them, you know, what it is that they went out there to see. 
a weak reed in the wind. And on the surface, that reads like a metaphor for somebody who's, you know, just blown around by whatever popular opinions may be there. And, you know, and on the surface, we think, well, yeah, obviously John was not that. Uh, but, but it's actually, um, it's likely one of the most political statements Jesus makes in all of the gospels, but it's, it's kind of indirect. Uh, Herod's seal the the one stamped on the back of all of his coins was the image of the Galilean reeds. And coins, you have to remember, in the ancient world, coins were the mass media of the time. That's what you sent your messages out on, basically, especially for those in charge who are leaders. So it's very likely that Jesus is referring to Herod. And I think the rest of his statement even bears it out. When he asks if they went to see a man who was dressed in wealthy clothing or, or living in a palace, he's contrasting John the Baptist with the, the wealthy man who is holding him in prison underneath his palace at that time. And Jesus elevates John above Herod, reminding the people that they didn't go in droves to hear what some politician like Herod had to say. Nobody cared what that poser had to say. They didn't give a flip. They wanted to hear a prophet They wanted to hear what God was saying through one of his chosen prophets. And Jesus goes on to describe him as the messenger, the Elijah that the prophet Malachi said was going to come before the Messiah came, who was going to stand there at the threshold of a new world where God's kingdom was breaking in. The day that was dawning at that time through Jesus. Jesus ushers in the inbreaking of God's kingdom into this world, and it changes everything. That's why when Jesus says the least of the group that lives when God's kingdom is present and active is even greater than John the Baptist. He's not saying that greater by merit, but greater by position because of where we are in history. The most insignificant person in the church still has greater access to God and a clearer picture of the kingdom of God than John the Baptist had when he was out preaching because of what Christ has accomplished through his death on the cross and resurrection. That is a powerful claim. And what Jesus is telling us here is that the potential of God's activity is present in each one of us today, every one of us. This is supposed to reinforce true truths in our lives. First, Jesus' words are a reminder that all of the possibilities of heaven are present in our lives right now as followers of Jesus. God's kingdom is invading through Jesus, and Jesus is present through his church, and his church is made up of the individual believers like us who gather together. And it is his power and activity is, is dynamic and active in your life as well as mine. We never want to diminish our sense of personal value in God's kingdom. Jesus declares right here in his word that you are greater than John the Baptist because of where you are in history. Never look at your life and say, I'm not important. I don't contribute to the kingdom that much. I'm really a nobody because everything we do is part of the kingdom project and every aspect of life from the mundane to the spectacular is part of this great story that God is telling and he loves your part of the story. He loves it. But this is also a reminder that there are no superstars in God's kingdom. 
We always have this tendency to want to elevate leaders and people who get to use microphones for some reason. Uh, people who are involved in noticeable ministry activities and we elevate them as being special or more important than ourselves. But that is simply part of this broken world's patterns. That is never part of God's intent. All of us equally are functional components of God's activity in this world through Jesus. And as we're in Christ, we are equal, equal parts of this work of revealing God's intent into this world. That's an exciting thing. That's something that none of us ever wants to take for granted or diminish in our lives. Let's embrace that. Meditate on that. Take some time even this week to think about that. Jesus, you told me I'm greater than John the Baptist. Help me live that in my life. Help me to see that pouring breakfast cereal for the kids in the morning is part of this amazing kingdom activity. Hey, you're feeding the hungry. And, and, and to acknowledge and appreciate this wonderful life that he's provided for us. Okay, well, let's keep reading here. Really, Rob? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we'll get it done. <laughs> Verse 29. When they heard this, all the people, even the tax collectors, agreed that God's way was right. See, in contrast to what they had been thinking, God's way was right, for they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in religious law rejected God's plan for them, for they had refused John's baptism. To what can I compare the people of this generation, Jesus asked. How how can I describe them? They're, They're like little children playing a game in the public square. They complained to their friends, we played wedding songs and you didn't dance, so we played funeral songs and you didn't weep. But John the Baptist didn't spend time eating bread or drinking wine, and you said, he's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown, wisdom is revealed to be right by the lives of those who follow it. Oh man, if there's ever, if you're an underline, if you'd underline in your Bibles, man, that's so important. That's where we're going to stop today. But Jesus compares his critics to spoiled children. One group wants to play wedding and one group wants to play funeral. I don't ever remember playing funeral when I was a kid, but you know, it's a different culture and everything. But both of them are stubbornly refusing to cooperate with each other. Jesus says, John the Baptist came all austere and serious And people recoiled and said, he's uncomfortable to be around. He might even be demon-possessed. He's creepy. Just look at him. Jesus came. He was friendly and joyful. And people started quoting Deuteronomy 21. Well, he's a rebellious son and a glutton and a drunkard. So there's no pleasing them, is what Jesus is saying. (laughs) There's no pleasing what those expectations, either culturally or religiously, were. That's too conservative. No, that's too liberal. Doesn't look right to me. I don't know. Jesus once again points to the results. Wisdom is vindicated by what's happening here. What do you see taking place all around me, Jesus is saying? What do you see happening in the lives of those who are near me? Jesus was not interested in trying to meet some religious expectations about appearances or the cultural status quo. God's work is often surprising to us because God's activity chooses restoration over respectability. 
As the modern day American church, we spend an inordinate amount of time trying to appease cultural expectations about how we look. Are we cool enough? Are we rock stars enough? <laughs> we talked about that earlier. Do we seem culturally current enough, you know, to be okay? Or we spend time trying to appease the religious expectations of our day. Are we cautious enough? Are we conservative enough? Will the conservatives be comfortable? Will the kids finally come back to church if I wear skinny jeans and get a tattoo? Can our music maybe be a mix of old hymns and EDM? On the flip side of that, yeah, did it go through your head trying to figure that one out? On the flip side of that, we spend an ungodly amount of time judging each other. Oh. We want the church to be respectable enough to be taken seriously, but culturally relevant enough to blend in. But listen. According to what Jesus declares here, we've got to grasp this. How any cultural side present today assesses us or how the church subculture views us, that is not the measure of the kingdom of God at work or God's activity in our church or in our lives. Restoration is. And the, as the church, the real question that we need to be asking of ourselves as individuals and of, our, as a, of ourselves as a church community. The real question is, are we a healing place? Are we an, a, a place extending grace? Can someone be restored by being in our midst? We may look rough around the edges. Remember, Jesus had tax collectors in his crew. We don't always seem respectable. Partly because of the people that are supposed to be hanging out with us. The culture around us may dismiss us as primitive and cheesy and irrelevant. None of that matters. What matters is, are we seeking to bring healing and grace and hope and life to those who are broken by this world? That is the test of God's activity in our midst. Wisdom is proven by what happens in our midst. If those things are taking place, if a life is being healed, if someone is restored in relationship to God, even though they may look a little rough around the edges, if they're restored in their understanding of who they are in the economy of God's creation, and I'd say heaven is closing in on us, that God's activity is put on display at that time. So let's remember that God is often working in unexpected ways. Sometimes it can be disappointing. That's okay. It doesn't mean that it's wrong to be disappointed. We can roll with that. We can grow from that. We can learn from it. It's his kingdom after all. And let's remember that we're called to revolutionize this world through the love of God, not through our anger or our outrage. Don't ever, don't ever let the summation of your Christian walk be, oh, I'm tired of being angry. If that's your view, please come talk to me because that is not the gospel. The gospel came into this world to give life and life abundantly. 
And that's what God wants for every one of us if we'll accept it and embrace it. Let's embrace His unthinkable love for ourselves so that then we can show that love to others around us. Right on? All right, very cool. Won't you stand with me, please? be here to work this truth into our lives and let it be expressed through us. Father, what we want is to be people who can live what you said, that wisdom is revealed by what happens here, what happens around us, what happens through us. Father, help us to take seriously the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, of redemption for those who don't deserve it, of hope for a world gone mad. Help us, Father, to rightly represent your kingdom in this world. Lord, we need you. All of the other things that vie for our attention, all the other things that want to define us, what we need is you, your presence, your activity in our lives. It doesn't matter how others view us, Father. It only matters that you view us with love. So help us build our identities on that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.